Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, when you're ready, let's Leave all this stuff in. <laughs> yeah, this is, the, this is the stuff that people tune in it's for. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. All right, when you're ready, let's do it. All right, man, let's do it. I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Stephen Keel. He runs Arquitos and he's got a lot of other interesting investments. He's a special situations investor. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, Steve, how are you? Hey, man, doing great. Thanks, Toby. So, uh, Arquitos, let's just, that's, the, that's your, your fund you've been running since 2012. It's returned 16.9% after fees. Um, and it says in the, in the document that you sent through that you're a special situation. So, do you want to just talk a little bit about what you do at Arquitos? Yeah, so... I mean, special situations can, can mean a lot of different things. To me, I'm looking for companies in transition. Uh, I'm looking to maximize uh, company-specific situations and kind of minimize external things. So uh, it's a variation of value investing in the way that I apply it kind of based on my personality, but requires concentrated approach, uh, a lot of uh, kind of aligned interests uh, with the companies themselves. Uh, but ultimately, I'm looking for for companies uh, that that are in transition and that I can uh, acquire at a, a reasonable price. So I saw you described it as having a strong balance sheet and then some pathway to free cash flow. So is that you're looking for something that the business isn't sort of ref, the business's strength isn't reflected yet in the financial statements? Is that right? Yeah. So I do something called balance sheet to income statement investing, and it's based on uh, kind of a quote by Peter Kundal back in the day. He said he buys on the balance sheet, sells on the income statement. Now, I don't want to sell, um, but how, how do you acquire things at reasonable prices in this environment, applying a, a Graham-style approach? Uh, and to do that, uh, you, you know, you have to find things a little bit earlier, I think, than in the past, or you have to find things that uh, there's, there's a little bit more uh, uncertainty uh, in the public reports uh, but you can follow some of the incentives uh, in the company themselves, whether it's because of uh, you know incentives for to attract a strong capital allocator, insider ownership, alignment of interest, and that type of thing. There might might have been back in the day, five years ago, uh, there were things like tax loss carry forwards were more important as well, uh, and and other uh, type of off balance sheet items or, or incentives based on that. So I want to buy when the balance sheet is strong, when it's reasonably priced. When there's something specific going on at the company that uh, might unlock that value over time, and then there's a transition uh, that that would be made to you know reinvestment opportunities, uh, predictable free cash flow generation over time. Uh, that that that's where I'd want to continue to own and and hold on to a company over time. Hopefully, you know, for for many many years or decades. So that that's a pretty good statement of the theory. Can you give some examples of how you have applied that in the past? Yeah. Well, with a larger company, even a Bank of America or some of the banks uh, coming out of the crisis, uh, where there was a, a several years where they were trying to strengthen their balance sheets and uh, they had, uh, you know, their, their kind of repurchase and, and uh, capital allocation decisions were controlled either by the government or different regulations. And, you know, you look at from 2009, 10, 11, 12, especially with the TARP warrants. Uh, with, with all the major banks, uh, there was a great opportunity there to to really uh, get quite a bit of value by buying on the balance sheet, uh, buying for balance sheet purposes. And then uh, most of those banks over the last few years have now made the transition of having predictable uh, cash flow generation, predictable return of capital. Uh, and even today, you can get really reasonable uh, and attractive returns simply based on return of capital alone. Now, that's an example for, for a larger company. I own Bank of America TARP warrants for many, many years. And, uh, and, and you know, I actually I owned it for about a five-year period. The price didn't move at all. And then after the election, uh, you know, when Trump was elected, 
think the next month it doubled and then a few months later it doubled again. So over five and a half years, it looked like a tremendous investment, but for five years, uh, it, it could have been accused to be kind of a value trap there. Um, but then all the way on the other side, you know, there's great examples for smaller companies that we've owned as well that are a little bit more uh, unique, I think. Well, well, let's talk about those smaller companies. I, I, I actually, I participated in that, uh, the TARP warrant, I, and yeah. I, I found that later, so I got very lucky with that. But uh, let's talk about the smaller companies. Yeah, there's a company today uh, that's my largest position. It's called MMA Capital, and it's made the transition over the last uh, six or seven years uh, from this balance sheet uh, type of, of approach, uh, reasonable valuations, uh, to now it's it's uh, transitioned into the income statement predictability. Uh, other investors haven't really realized it yet, and it's also a very small company. It's a $200 million company, and uh, it does have tax loss carry forward. So. Uh, you're not able to own more than five percent of the company, so this is good for small funds. It's good for personal accounts for um, for, for larger investors. Uh, but it's a little bit of a complicated story, and so you know it's not attracting. Uh, it's it, it's too small for very large investors, but it's it's a little too complicated for for general retail investors. So it's it's good for our sweet spot with a smaller fund. Uh, and you know the background there was there were a number of uh, off balance sheet items, off balance sheet assets. Uh, through the years, they were buying back about 10% of the company per year for for four, five, six years in a row. Uh, a lot of insider ownership, alignment of interest, and uh, again, we're not paying any taxes on on uh, the assets that they were they were selling. So the balance sheet, the book value was growing every year, and uh, they were transitioning into into a different type of business. And uh, their specialty uh, asset manager, and now their primary business is much different than it was five years ago. What's the transition been? Yeah, so their primary business now is is a solar lending fund, and uh, they partnered up with, ironically, Bank of America several years ago. Uh, and uh, you know they'll they'll likely throw off six dollars a share uh, next year, and, and just from the returns from the solar lending fund, uh, trades at thirty two dollars, uh, book value is thirty seven and change. Uh, and, and so it's uh, you know it, it took several years to create that predictability. Uh, but now, now you're there, and uh, we're just waiting for kind of the last 12 month uh, comparisons, and then it'll start showing up on screens, and then, you know, should, because it trades below book value, it also throws off so much uh, of, of this return uh, over the next year. Uh, you know, we're going to have income statement style investors start buying into the company uh, that were not interested in the company for for all those years where it traded at 80 percent of book, but but did not create uh, predictable uh, cash generation. So in your last uh, investor presentation, I think, or letter, you had that as a 39% position in the portfolio. Yeah. But that's, I, th- I, got, I got the impression from the note that that had grown to that level. You didn't, it's nowhere near initiation at that level. So where, where, where do you, how do you size something like that in the portfolio? Yeah, so I generally uh, want to, when I buy into something, I want to make it at 8 to 10% at cost. And it's just grown over time. Uh, you, you never want to, you don't want to uh, pull the flowers. You know, so if something grows, if it becomes an outside piece of the portfolio, it's still, if it trades at a reasonable valuation, and, and MMA today might might even be cheaper today than it was when I first bought into it five or six years ago, uh, because the operations have improved so so greatly, uh, and it still trades at a discount. I mean, again, book value is 37 and change, and we're at, we're at a little bit below 32 today, it, it, and they continue to buy back shares below book, which is accretive, uh, obviously there, but. Uh, you know, so it might be cheaper today than it ever has been, but it's it grew from from ten percent of the portfolio at cost up to uh, anywhere between thirty five and forty percent today, and I'm I'm happy to own it at that price because there's still a pathway over the next five years for it to grow thirty percent a year from here, and uh, we we'd love to own it from there. Wouldn't it be great to, to have a forty percent position in the portfolio that grows thirty percent a year for five years? I mean, we can we can sit back and relax for a bit. Huh? <laughs> So I have followed uh, another position in your fund pretty closely. I think anybody who's been a deep value net net guy knows Sightstar, which was uh, yeah. they they had the uh, they have the machines that convert coins into uh, into cash. I think right. Oh, Coinstar. Yeah. Coinstar. <laughs> Coinstar. Did I say Sightstar? I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what? what are, so am, am I confused? What? What is Sightstar? Yeah, well, Sightstar is a small public company. It took over in 2015, uh, and it background was it was an internet service provider actually. So when you think about uh, what's more 
simple than uh, maybe a, a coin-operated machine or something like that. Well, it's dial-up internet. And uh, so we, we had that, it had some real estate as well. Uh, uh, Jeff Moore and myself and, uh, and Jeremy Gold uh, helped to kind of take it over in 2015, 2014, 15. And uh, it, a small public company, it was an SEC filing company. And uh, when we took control in December, 2015, we, we had some ideas uh, primarily in the asset management area, which we've executed uh, through the years. We have a couple other businesses associated with it as well that are, are kind of non-core at this point. We learned a good lesson uh, not to be diversified, quite frankly. <laughs> we did change the name to Enterprise Diversified, which I think was a mistake uh, because we're really trying to focus on the asset management area where we found a lot of success and teamed up with a lot of great uh, people, including uh, Dave Waters and uh, Jeff Gannon and Andrew Kuhn and Keith Smith and others like that. And so that's the part of the business we're really trying to grow. We think there's a ton of potential there. So you guys got control of that business. Can you talk us through that process and and what how, how you found it, how, what, what the process of getting control was like and what it's been like running it? Yeah, when I first found the company, my fund was, was fairly small. Uh, and, and so, you know, you could have a position in a, a sub $10 million company, for example, especially when it traded at about a quarter of a book uh, value and I thought there was some additional value uh, off balance sheet. I mean, there's historical uh, prices on some real estate and things like that. So Jeff uh, Moore actually was the, was the person who originally found it. And, uh, you know, I was going to own it just as a passive investment and uh, owned it for a few years. And then Jeff and I, we would regularly meet with uh, with the CEO, chairman at the time. And uh, we're obviously unimpressed with with kind of some of the decisions he was making and and then it turned out there were some self-dealing and things of that nature so we ended up getting on the board and uh, we ran a proxy contest and, and eventually uh uh i guess instigated him to step down as the ceo and and uh and we took over um ironically now we're, we're about uh, four years in and uh yeah, the stock price is about the same. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> so I, I can't say it's been a, I mean, it went up and then it's gone back down again here. So it's been a bit of a challenge, but, uh, but the things we've done, especially again, in the asset management area behind the scenes, uh, is tremendously more value than, than what's reflected uh, so, so far. And uh, it's really would be very, very difficult to replicate the relationships, the formal relationships that have that we've built uh, with with some of the really talented portfolio managers. Uh, we'll come to Willow Oak in a moment, but just just uh, how how much how much cost and how time consuming is it to get control of that board, and what what was that like? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I don't remember who said this, but uh, I think actually I think it was uh, it was it was Blackstone or something like that, uh, where basically he said if you're going to uh, put in the work, uh, you might as well do it for a larger company as opposed to a smaller company because the same amount of work and the payoff right. can be much greater. And so uh, I didn't, obviously didn't uh, didn't know that at the time or maybe didn't take that to heart. Uh, but uh, so there's there was a tremendous amount of work in, in 2014, 15 time period and in early 2016, uh, not only to take control of the business, a lot of legal wranglings and, uh, and things like that, but then also uh, once we did take control, uh, to uh, we right-sized the internet operations, uh, turned it into a, a really regular, predictable, free cash flow generating entity, and uh, sold off some of that real estate, and then entered a few other business lines as well. So it was a lot of work at that time. At that point, uh, I I now am chairman. Uh, I was CEO at the time. I'm now chairman of the company. We've got a great team. You know, it takes time to build that team out too. Uh, it probably took us two years to really get the people in place. Um, at the senior level uh, that we needed to do. And if we would have had more resources, if it would have been a larger company, I think that would have would have been easier. So uh, my advice, if anybody wants to uh, go activist, is, is first of all, don't. It's, uh, <laughs> it's probably not worth it um, in the short term, though it will be worth it in the long term. And uh, and, and second, if you're going to do it, do it, do it with a larger company. You know, if you're a small fund, um, you, it's it's really it's it's difficult to do with a small company because the the expenses are are still going to be substantial, and uh, you have to make that transition yourself. And uh, it's it's difficult to to build out a really talented team. It takes time to do that uh, if you don't have the resources, uh, especially. So uh, it's better to have kind of more infrastructure in place. I think. 
So the asset management business, Willow Oak, is that that's wholly created by by you? By yeah. You so guys? we started. Yeah, we started that in 2016, and the the initial purpose was to seed alluvial fund, uh, which is a fund uh, uh, we started with uh, Dave Waters. Um, and David runs some managed accounts for for several years. Uh, he ran the blog, continues to run the blog, OTCAdventures.com. And uh, Dave and I go back many years. We share stock ideas. He's probably fairly well known in the value investing and especially small micro cap uh, communities. And and so, uh, you know, he had been successful uh, with the managed accounts. He had wanted to start a fund, and uh, we we approached him and, and thought it might be worthwhile to to really be strong strategic partners. Uh, to do that, so so we uh, we launched the fund, we seeded it, we raised money uh, at the uh, at the public company, we created the asset management subsidiary Willow Oak Asset Management, uh, and and that was the genesis of it. Uh, from there, we ended up uh, launching a fund with Keith Smith uh, called Bonhoeffer Fund, and, and Keith is uh, on our board. Uh, he's fairly well known in the. Uh, in the, uh, uh, the corner of Berkshire and, and Fairfax, uh, and many of these events, uh, Fairfax event and, um, and things like that. He's a great guy, uh, and uh, we're excited to, to launch it with him. And then uh, most recently, we've, uh, uh, we're launching a fund actually on January 1st with Jeff Gannon and, and Andrew Kuhn at Focus Compounding. And so the focus of all of those, the, the, uh, the connection between all of them, they're all value guys, but beyond that, is you, you know, are you looking for any particular style, or you, you you're just looking for folks who are value investors generally? Yeah, at this at this point, because uh, Willow Oak is still small and growing, and it is uh, kind of all part of, of of our network and my network. Uh, and so, you know, I didn't just meet these guys one day. We've we've had relationships for many many years, and uh, always was was impressed with them and impressed with what they're doing. Each one of them had a very uh, a great long-term personal track record uh, that we thought could translate into a fund. Uh, so, you know, that's that's where that came from. Each of them wanted to start a fund, and and uh, we were there. Willow Oak was there to to assist with that and to provide some best practices and operational support uh, and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, in the future, I don't know. I mean, I, we're we're niche value. Uh, we've got each of the funds has a slightly different approach, but. Um, but all with the same foundation. And, uh, you know, I think it might be even be a little charitable to call them emerging funds at this point. So it might be frontier funds. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, the runway is long. And if you follow, if any of you follow kind of the Peter Kaufman five aces thing, um, you know, there are, no, there are a number of things there that, you know, having integrity, having a niche uh, approach and things like that. But the fifth one is having a long runway. And uh, I think each of those funds has a long runway. And uh, when you think of the fees that, that uh, they could earn, the fee shares that Willow Oak can earn, the return that we can give to the investors in the funds themselves, uh, you know, five or 10 years from now, uh, just from the, the performance and compounding and, and things like that alone, uh, we'll, we'll all be very happy. And so Willow Oak provides a back office function and some assistance with raising capital. Yeah, so the back office is the is the biggest thing, uh, especially for uh, you know just kind of the operational infrastructure. That if you're starting a one man fund, which you know I did in 2012 when I started Arquitos, uh, there are a bunch of best practices that you just have to learn along the way, and there are expenses associated with that. There's um, kind of showing that you're not just a one man band, and uh, and there are you know a number, especially as the investor base grows, uh, there are just a number of of distractions potentially. Uh, that need to be done, uh, you know, interacting with the, the auditors and the administrators and legal and uh, just keeping keeping all the uh, track of everything and compliance. And so uh, Willow Oak was designed to kind of provide some of that to reduce the risk, uh, monetary risk for the startup. You know, we have paid for the, the launch of the funds uh, themselves. And, uh, you know, the, the idea is to kind of solve solve a problem. And then Certainly, there are people who uh, investors who discover one or more of the funds, and uh, you know, some allocators they want to spread spread money around uh, amongst uh, several different funds. Uh, they like the philosophy of each one, and so we we definitely have overlap with investors as well. And you know, we have an opportunity to to have some some uh, joint marketing. Uh, we we do a, a thing at uh, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting every year 
um, you can see on our, our YouTube page, uh, panel discussion and others like that. So uh, and it's been great to uh, kind of learn from each other and, and to be able to have uh, formal resources there. And how, how do you divide your time now between uh, Enterprise Diversified and Arquitos? Yeah, most of my time is with Arquitos. Uh, now that we've been able to build out the team uh, at, at uh, Enterprise Diversified. So my job is really more as a, a strategic uh, you know, person, uh, a, a cheerleader. Um, and you know, I, the network that I've kind of built uh, with, with the investors themselves and with, uh, with the different portfolio managers and other, that's been, that's been valuable. Um, and, and then our, our operations staff kind of handles all the day-to-day. -day. So I'm, I'm not as uh, involved in the day-to-day -day very much anymore. We've got a great team at, uh, at Enterprise Diversified and Willow Oak to do that. Uh, but I'm kind of here to, to do, uh, to talk to you and, and do these events and help to promote uh, the business and, and, you know, help to explain the business too and, and show how excited we are about it. So what's the plan with Enterprise Diversified? Is it to turn it into uh, an asset management company or is it, will it be a more diversified as the name suggests? Yeah, we're going to have to drop the diversified portion there. <laughs> Originally, the idea back in 2015 and 16 was to uh, invest in, in a, a few different types of businesses, different types of industries. But the idea was to really, for us to be funding partners and to, to invest in the operators themselves. But unfortunately at that size, uh, the operators that we invested in, it just wasn't going to, uh, it, in hindsight, uh, it, it hasn't worked. Um, and it, it's unlikely to work at this size as part of a public company. Uh, there's a reason why most of those uh, companies are, are and should be private, uh, but where we've, we're most excited about and found the most potential in was in the asset management area here. And so uh, that's where the focus is at this point. Uh, we have several other lines of business. We have the old dial up internet business. We have some real estate. Uh, we, we have uh, uh, things like that, which uh, are really non-core parts of the business at this point. Uh, what we're trying to do are, is continue to, to grow our investor base uh, in the funds that we're associated with and, and to continue to kind of create uh, formal relationships with uh, new portfolio managers. You've had some uh, criticism on Twitter from the Woodmont folks, uh, Tice Brown. Do you want to address that? <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, one of the, the issues with the real estate. Uh, this was a, a part of the non-core business there. Uh, we had uh, sold off a portion of the, the real estate uh, to Woodmont. And uh, as, as part of that sale, there is a confidentiality uh, clause in the agreement, which uh, unfortunately uh, Woodmont has violated, but uh, we will not be violating that. So uh, we filed a, a lawsuit uh, listing several uh, items uh, associated with it. It's an unfortunate uh, situation uh, there, but uh, our, our only the only things we will be able to mention is uh, through 8K filings and, and things of that. But you know, I think the important thing there is again, our focus is on the the asset management business. And uh, some of the other lines of business are, are such a minor part at this point. Uh, when we first took over the business, the book value, for example, of Enterprise Diversified was kind of the way to value the company. And uh, it's really not the case anymore. I mean, we've, the same way I've approached through Arquitos, uh, finding companies that are in transition, that transition from book value kind of um, analysis to, to income statement uh, kind of you know, predictability. Uh, that's kind of where we're at with Enterprise Diversified as well, where we uh, we are in the midst of that transition, and uh, the asset management area is really where uh, where most of that that is the fee share, different relationships with uh, with those managers, and and so our book value uh, for the non-core businesses used to be such a big part of the business, and they're really not anymore. Well, let's go back to Arquitos. How, how are you finding your ideas there? You say you don't screen. So, what's the process for a uh, generating ideas. So I, I always believed in primary sources. So I, I my background is as a, a recovering lawyer. Um, I joined the club that uh, <laughs> you're you're a member as well. Yep. We're, we're not alone. Uh, and so uh, we're we're not uh, averse to uh, to uh, <laughs> glancing through. <laughs> They might need to cut that. Steven's, um, Steve's uh, logo just fell off the wall. <laughs> um, we'll go back to, uh, to to the question there. Um, 
hopefully it's not a uh, a it's not a, portentous uh, an omen yes uh how the market's doing today but um no so i you know my my background is as a, a recovering uh, attorney and so we uh you're not averse to kind of reading through several hundred page documents uh it's not just the 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 10ks but it also might be an employment agreement uh and, and things like that that are, are essentially sec filings um and uh, so that, that's where I go. I go to the primary sources. I have a number of SEC alerts set up. Uh, when you think about an S1 filing or an S3 filing, uh, you know, I love those. We get uh, five, seven, ten of those a day. Obviously, I don't read through each one of them, but I at least glance through and uh, set aside uh, some of the more interesting ones. And so, um, you know, that's, that's a, a great place to look. I'm lo looking through employment agreements. I'm looking through uh, different key terms. Uh, such as contingent value rights, you know, rights offerings, tender offers, um, and uh, occasionally you'll come across something interesting, and you and you follow that lead. What was your area of practice as, as a lawyer? Yeah, so I did a lot of uh, government investigations and uh, and and some things like that, some M and A, uh, more on the on the uh, HSR side, uh, second requests and things like that, and. Uh, I actually am still a lawyer in the Army Reserves, uh, about 20 years in, and I'm a defense attorney. So it's a little bit different than uh, than the private practice. Um, but when I was uh, practicing, this is you know 2007, period. Um, there there were uh, a number of companies uh, where you really see behind the scenes. I and mean, when you're doing some sort of a government investigation, you're reading emails and uh, different kind of background information on the leadership of public companies. Uh, oftentimes, and uh, it gave me an appreciation uh, for how little the public actually knows about what goes on behind the scenes. And uh, when you think about this idea of alignment of interest, I mean, we all want alignment of interest with with the investments we're in. We're passive investors primarily, and so you'd have to be able to trust the decision making uh, of the public company. Um, but you're just not going to know uh, nearly as much as 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 what is. Well, as you think you know. I mean, whatever you think you know, it's 10% of, of what is actually going on um, behind the scenes. And, and being a lawyer and, and kind of reading reading that type of, of, uh, of stuff gave you a, even more of an appreciation to make sure that you have, you truly have the alignment of interest. So, you know, you do have insider ownership, you do have uh, uh, good capital allocation kind of decisions made. And, and uh, there's not very many companies out there like that, which is why you have to concentrate. So your primary area of search is the S1s, S3s, which are the security issuance, and, and, and you like contingent value rights and things like that. So you're looking for that transitional period. Yeah. Yeah, and I found a, a number of different things through the years. I mean, I, an investment in 2012 with a bankrupt ICE company, you know, for example, there was some equity stub value coming out of that. Uh, I had a great investment in 2015, 16, 17, Intra West Resorts, which was a a company owned by a fortress fund where they did a, a, a huge tender offer uh, and then uh, ended up getting getting uh, sold. Um, and, you know, so so that type of uh, it, it depends on each each situation, you know, but uh, you're really looking for something, something that's company specific. Uh, it has uh, less risk and less variables outside of the company and, uh, and and really something specific as to to what's going on where management has control. Uh, over the situation, it can control the variables. Uh, right. Um, so, are there are there a lot of are there many S one S are there are there a great deal coming through? Yeah, you know, and I think there there have been, um, but they I think over time, uh, especially as as you know, give it the next couple of years, I'm actually excited about uh, more corporate restructuring, especially with larger companies. Uh, you know, the first four, five, six years of the fund, I, I well, you know, I'd invest in some smaller companies. Obviously, we talked about enterprise diversified, very small company, but uh, but I also owned obviously the Bank of America TARP warrants. I owned Philip 66 spinoff. Uh, I had some larger companies. Iron Mountain went through a, a conversion from a real estate investment or into a real estate investment trust, and that was an opportunity. Uh, I think it was 2014 time period. And so these are some larger companies. And then as the markets have uh, reacted in the way that they have the last few years, those types of obvious opportunities start to go away. And there's not as many uh, company-specific corporate restructurings. 
but I, I, as we get a correction, um, you know, as we, we get uh, more turbulence in the market, I think that'll provide more mid cap and large cap company uh, kind of introspection, which uh, would create some opportunities for, uh, for, for me to look at. So you've got, we've discussed already MMA cap and, uh, and enterprise diversified that makes up a, a little bit over two thirds, maybe almost two thirds of the portfolio. So what else have you got in the portfolio? Yeah, so a little bit, probably a little bit below sixty percent there, but I, I've generally had top five positions make up seventy five percent of the of the portfolio uh, ever since the, the launch of the fund, and and probably a little more concentrated than that uh, prior to when I launched the fund. Uh, but we've got a company called Westame uh, that I, I really love. Uh, this is. Uh, not been a great performer on the uh, on the price side, but it's been uh, strong operationally. Uh, and so over the last few years, uh, they've strengthened uh, uh, two subsidiaries. One is a, an insurance company. They've strengthened that. And they're looking to sell it off uh, or possibly IPO it this spring. Uh, and then they also uh, teamed up with Dan Zwern uh, and uh, Arena Investors with uh, a credit fund. Um, and uh, I think they're up to 1.2 billion or so in assets, uh, up from seven or 800 million over the last uh, year or so. So uh, they're growing. They reached a tipping point. Uh, I think they became profitable at about a billion dollars under under assets. Um, and and so uh, the business is doing great. It's really advanced. Uh, it's operationally been been very strong. And uh, the stock price though has been crushed. Uh, book value is. Uh, it's somewhere around 337 or so Canadian. The stock trades at 265, um, which is just really, it's ridiculous. Uh, but it's it's great for us if we're in acquisition mode. What? Why the big discrepancy? Yeah, it's a Canadian company, and there were some uh, Canadian small cap uh, mutual funds uh, that had closed down over the last year, year and a half or so. Uh, as you know, small cap value is not the, it's been the best place to be in the last two years. And uh, some mutual funds uh, uh, really, really struggled there, and especially in Canada. Uh, so I think there's some poor selling associated with that. I will say, uh, Parag Shaw, who's a, a friend of mine, uh, he's the head of marketing at Arena. He used to be the head of marketing at Bridgewater. Um, he's an advisor to Willow Oak as well. And uh, he just made an open market purchase of West Ames shares uh, about a month and a half ago of a million dollars. And so, uh, you know, clearly he's uh, happy about what's going on there, uh, not kind of talking privately or, you know, any confidential information there. But uh, when you see an insider purchase that large from a non kind of CEO, COO, CFO, uh, and he is as close to, uh, you know, the, the future of the credit fund and what their uh, asset raising opportunities are over the next few years than anyone else. Uh, he made a, a very large personal investment there. So that's a, a great sign for the company. And next spring, too, we'll have a resolution on the insurance company. And there's uh, a significant amount of additional book value there uh, from the insurance company that uh, uh, will will be, you know, cause that 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 uh, uh, difference between the current price and the book value to grow even further. So these are all particularly interesting positions. How, how do you how did how do you transition from being a lawyer to being an investor in in things like this? Yes, uh, I mean it, it's a good question, and I always was interested in things like this. Uh, you know, going back to even before I I graduated from law school uh, as a personal investor, uh, you know, I was always interested in in kind of niche things and idiosyncratic things, um, things that are uh, maybe not well known companies that uh, are, are not. Average uh, would not have been well known uh, from the you know retail investor, uh, and you know that goes back to probably the late '90s, early 2000s, uh, and you know I always appreciated the Buffett partnership letters more than the Berkshire Hathaway letters. Right. Uh, we all can kind of point to to Buffett um, one way or another as some sort of inspiration and. You know, I read the book yeah, back in, I think it was 1996, the uh, Lowenstein book, Making American Capitalist, and I remember reading that and, uh, you know, being being more interested in, in uh, the, the portfolios from the 50s and 60s uh, than buying, you know, say, Coca-Cola in the 80s. Uh, so I always gravitated towards those unique situations. That's funny because when I was reading through your letters, I had that 
you know, you discuss workouts and control situations, and I thought this language is very reminiscent of the uh, the Buffett partnership letters. Yeah, I try to stay away from the word wonderful, though, because it, somehow he transitioned from, you know, workouts and, and everything like that to, uh, to you know, buying wonderful businesses at reasonable prices, which is, you know, whatever whatever the value investors have turned into today, the word value means whatever, you know, people want to define it as. Um, but uh, I try to stay away from, from some of the more uh, colloquial words <laughs> like that. It's funny. It's not – it's a uh, – I, I, I sort of – I know it well and I've talked about it a lot, but that Buffett partnership, Buffett is a much different investor from, uh, right. you know, latter day Berkshire Buffett, where he did, he was a, he was a corporate raider in, in essence, a corporate raider, a liquidator, he'd get control. He was pretty ruthless when he was uh, in those early years and he transitioned. But I think even, even in his, even in the later days now where he's in that, um, he's in that wonderful company at a fair price the fair prices that he likes are still pretty cheap i think yeah. for, for many of the positions a lot cheaper than a lot of uh, modern day value investors seem to be prepared to pay anyway yeah absolutely and, and you know he talks about the transition it kind of being made into a little bit more of a phil fisher style investor because of munger but if you look at munger's partnership back in the in the late 50s and or i'm sorry the 60s and early 70s i mean munger was not that type of investor either munger was primarily a special situation investor and and uh, he, he had some fascinating investments with Rick Guerin um, and, and had some with Buffett as well. But, uh, you know, Munger, Munger took over uh, a closed-in fund. Um, he, he did a number of, uh, obviously, blue-chip stamps at the time, too. And, uh, you know, the, and he was concentrated. Uh, the rumor is that, uh, I don't know how true this actually is, though I, people reference it uh, from, from the Munger book, that at one point he was had more than 100% in one stock. So <laughs> he was levered. He was uh, obviously volatile, much more volatile than Buffett. But uh, at one point, he apparently had more than 100% in one stock. So uh, he's always been much more concentrated. Uh, but even Buffett himself was concentrated. I mean, the American Express position uh, back in the, in the salad oil scandal days, uh, I think it was 50 60% of the, of the portfolio. Uh, so somehow, you know, hedge funds turned into an asset class over the last 50 years, and it turned into this portfolio that is kind of a glorified mutual fund. Right. And that's not what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm trying to do things uh, that would have been done in the 50s or 60s uh, in, in the era of the, the Buffett and Munger and Guerin and others like that. One of the things that I noticed from your letters too is how small those partnerships were. I think you said Munger had 11 million and uh, Walter Schloss, how, how much did he have in his fund when he closed it down or at, at sort of later on? Yeah, something like, I, I forget what Schloss had specifically, but it was also not very large. And uh, if you think about in today's dollars, I mean, Munger, I think was 60, 50, 60, 70 million in today's dollars. Schloss was somewhere around there as well. Schloss was much more diversified, of course. Uh, but even Buffett, you know, it was... What three four hundred million or so uh, at one point, and kind of in today's dollars, and uh, maybe eventually made it up to about a billion, but that was through appreciation uh, alone. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of billion-dollar hedge funds today. Um, and it, back in back then, it would have been you know one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, fund at the time. And uh, certainly, size size limits what you can do. Uh, absolutely. And Buffett's investments were reflected. The size of his fund reflected those investments. So I, I, I've gone through and it, particularly even when he was talking about the transitional type investments like American Express and other, his the rest of the portfolio was sort of these tiny net net liquidation positions. Yeah, Dempster Mills and right. others like that. Uh, yeah, and, and these are companies that were obviously not. I mean, even the Berkshire Hathaway at the time and others like that. And you can certainly do more gram-related things. And back then, valuations were much much cheaper on the balance sheet side than they are today. Uh, and, but you know, you could you could do those types of things uh, at a small size, and I think you can still do them today. You just have to be concentrated. Uh, you know, West Aim or an MMA Capital or an Enterprise Diversified, or you know, I own a company called Pendrel that uh, went private about a year ago and. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a cash box, you know, and uh, it trades at seventy five percent of net cash, and uh, you know, trades at one hundred and fifty, one hundred sixty thousand dollars a share because they did a, <laughs> a reverse split. Uh, but uh, you know, there's still things like that out there, but a lot of them turn into kind of what are called one day stocks, 
you know, they're at a, a particular price. Uh, Pendrel, for example, is just going to be where it is at. And then one day it'll do a transaction. It'll go public again. And, you know, it could go up three or four times uh, from, from where it, it trades at now or where it's valued at now uh, based on that transaction. And, uh, you know, that's kind of interesting, but it also requires discipline on your part as a portfolio manager. It re requires alignment uh, from your investors uh, as well to make sure they have an appreciation for what you're trying to do and knowing that there could be volatility uh, on the results. That doesn't mean there's volatility on the operations, though. Given that it does require this sort of level of discipline and the opportunities are infrequent or rare, do you tend to carry cash? Well, I think if I was larger, if the fund was larger, when it becomes larger, there'll be more more cash kind of set aside as an option. There's the idea that uh, you do you do want something there uh, to to take advantage of sharp drops or to take advantage of unique opportunities that come up very quickly. Uh, historically, I haven't uh, I haven't had cash on the side. I've been fully invested. Uh, I do keep kind of a black swan style hedge on uh, with the idea of, of being able to sell it in order to generate cash uh, to put into a, a watch list item if, if there's a sharp drop. You know, there's the old saying that the markets kind of take the stairs up and the elevator right. down and probably more so than ever today because of, you know, we've got electronic trading, we've got all of the issues with uh, with index funds and, and other pressures. Um, that uh, the, the black swan style kind of protection there is probably not a bad idea. So I've done that and it's been helpful. What, how, what, have you, what have you done? How have you, how have you structured that? Yeah, so I mean, I haven't gone into a whole lot of detail because some of the instruments we do this with uh, are, are not the most liquid things. So I don't want to give it away too much, but it does involve, you know, some sort of volatility or an option or something like that, um, that uh, uh, moves very sharply uh, when the markets drop. Uh, quickly, and I don't want to continue to own it. It's you know, it's not a, a market hedge. It's not a, a portfolio hedge. It's it's something that uh, when the market gets a sharp correction, uh, I want to sell it within uh, a short amount of time. And you know, there is no better uh, example of this than again going back to the election uh, when Trump was elected. Uh, if you remember, the markets were down very well, uh, very very significantly that evening. And uh, that that hedge, I think at the time my fund was worth uh, seven million in assets or something like that, and the hedge itself uh, was uh, was a million dollars. Uh, it was worth a million dollars. However, uh, the market opened up the next day because, if you recall, at about five in the morning uh, Eastern time, uh, Carl Icahn woke up and said, "I'm going to put a billion dollars to work the next day." And uh, the Dow recovered, the pre-market recovered, and I think the the market actually opened up. And uh, I never had the opportunity to sell the hedge since it did not allow for uh, the instrument did not allow for for non-market hour trading, and uh, you know, but it was fine because the rest of the portfolio benefited obviously from the the, the markets going up and some of the specific holdings we had. But you know, that would have been a, a tremendous uh, amount of protection and cash that would have been generated that I could have put to work. Uh, in, in, in that turbulent time period. You know, it's funny. I've had I've had variations of those hedges on. I've had front month VIX calls. I've had uh, out of the money. Don't give it away. Well, Don't give away the, the, the I, secrets. <laughs> like, like, like you, I've I've never cashed one in, and I've had I've had some pretty monster winners. Uh, I've had yeah. I had some HYG puts, and I've had uh, I, I used the Spitznagel uh, just just buying out of the money puts on the market so the hyg is the high yeah. yield index but i had these the vix calls at that same time and i woke up or late at night it might have been 22 percent of my pa <laughs> and again expired worthless i've never cashed one in but they've all been at various stages very significant portions of the portfolio that was a wild night and, and i remember i was actually in california i was in san diego at the time and and uh, it was it was such a wild night for the markets. I stayed up all night, and and to be able to be three hours behind as well, three hours behind New York, and to see, hey, you know, Carl Icahn at two thirty in the morning is making these announcements <laughs> on CNBC. Do you think he um, bought? I don't know. You know, I I I, I you how know, did I he transact? Go back and check the thirteen Fs or something like that to see what he did. But uh, yeah. his statement alone and uh, was seemed to be enough and. You know, I, it worked out. I mean, when you think about the uh, the reduced regulatory uh, and regulatory environment approved, especially with the banks and lending and kind of business optimism, 
uh, it, it certainly was was beneficial to to the market and it has been the last few years. Uh, the, I mean, nobody else could have got through a corporate tax cut. You know, nobody was talking about corporate tax cuts at the time. Um, and I was actually it was probably a negative for for Arquitos though, because at the time I was benefiting from these net operating loss carry forward companies. But uh, but you know that I had the, I had the Bank of America warrants. Other people owned the the financials, and uh, there was a sharp move over the next month or two after the election that otherwise would not have occurred. Do you know that, that one of the things I think that gets lost in the shuffle a little bit, that move actually started on the Thursday before the election. And I, I sometimes wonder about that. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I, maybe there's a, 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 a predict it style uh, element to it that, uh, right. <laughs> you know, some, some people uh, with uh, larger uh, allocations than us uh, might have known something. But uh, it certainly benefited the banks, though, and, and the warrants themselves were – you know, I, I, I started my fund on April 10th, 2012, and I had been running managed accounts for three years before that. I owned the TARP warrants there. I owned it in my personal account. And so that was the first thing I had bought, the Bank of America TARP warrants. And, you know, we look back at Brian Moynihan as, as being kind of a leader right now, but, you know, with him and Jamie Diamond are, are really the, the most stable, sober leaders in, in these large banks. And that wasn't the case back in 2011-12. And Moynihan did not have the reputation he, he does now, really until Buffett ended up buying into Bank of America. In some ways, he, he, he diluted shareholders in order to, to increase uh, his credibility, and Buffett got a great deal there. But it seems it to work for shareholders. It works for shareholders over the long run uh, as well. Um, but those were, the, those were the warrants I, I bought. I liked what Moynihan was doing in that time period. Uh, I was most comfortable. I thought that was the lowest risk. And, you know, also we thought, I thought there would be some uh, uh, interest rate increases. And when you think about the deposit base of, of Bank of America, they had the lowest cost deposits uh, because of, of, uh, of and kind of the retail network and, uh, and things like that. And they obviously would benefit the most then if there were interest rate increases. And that hasn't happened. Um, but the banks have still benefited and Bank of America has still benefited because the return of capital is so, is so high. Uh, relative to what it was before. I mean, they're all overcapitalized still. Those Bank of America war TARP warrants were very interesting. I, I didn't get to them until much, much later, but I remember that the stock hadn't done anything for a long period of time, and I think I bought them roughly. I don't think there was much premium in them at all at the time that we bought them, and they were trading. The, they didn't have to go up very much at all to be materially in the money, and I think they were 20, 2021 or 2023, they had a long time to run, and you just you basically you were getting a free hit if it went up. That was that was about the full extent of my analysis. Yeah, and and well, and plus they weren't priced appropriately for a number of reasons. You know, you don't the black holes doesn't really work on these long dated right. things. The the uh, the strike price themselves uh, dropped. Uh, you know, as That's dividends right. uh, started, and now ultimately the B warrants. You know, they expired worthless. Uh, the the uh, those are the old uh, Merrill Lynch ones, I believe. Um, the strike price was thirty seventy nine, and uh, they they expired worthless. But um, you know, it was it was an interesting thing to look at. And if you if you're interested in Bank of America, why not own uh, a little bit of a different instrument? You know, and that's kind of been the way that I've approached it uh, since the launch as well. Is when you find a, a large company, if you have a different way to play it, uh, where you might have an additional opportunity. Joel Greenblatt talks about this and. Right. And, uh, you can be a stock market genius that when you have an asymmetric situation, you can really juice those returns without making, uh, uh, without taking on really too much additional risk. And that was exactly the opportunity there with the TARP warrants. And even they, uh, Berkshire Hathaway, for example, through the years, I've done uh, long dated options on them uh, when it's it's gone to a price below what Buffett has bought at. There were times when it was 1.2 times book, uh, 1.3 times book five years ago. Uh, that you could buy these, uh, you know, options two years out with a strike price um, at 1.2 times book at the money, and uh, you know I made 100, 200, 300 percent returns on some of those positions. They were one or two or three percent positions, but um, you know certainly at some point over the next two years, if it trades at 1.2 times book, uh, it'll it'll increase a little bit, and uh, your your downside risk is minimal. Um, and, and your upside risk is uh, with the options are several times more than it would be with the stock itself. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm a big fan of those uh, late warrants, and I, I freely admit that I got the idea from uh, from Joel Greenblatt. It's a great idea. Yeah. 
Um, well, read that. I mean, yeah, that's what, the, you can be a stock market genius book has so many great tools. Yeah. Uh, I mean, goofy title, but but uh, really in-depth uh, uh, strategies that you can apply today. And uh, the leaps are a big thing because uh, the options, you know, I, I really do believe that the options market kind of did not exist in the uh, back in the day in the same way that it does today. You'd have to kind of create private options back in the 50s and 1670s. But I, I truly believe that a Munger or a Buffett or Garrett or uh, others like that during that time period um, would have would have really taken advantage of some of those anomalies, especially in the asymmetric style uh, uh, opportunities and situations. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's one of those places that I still think you find really wildly mispriced things all the time because I think that there are a lot of folks who use Black Shoals or something to value them. And if you approach it like a value guy where you've got a view on one direction over another and something that's got no volatility because it's just been boring or it hasn't done anything for a long time, you get some wildly mispriced options in there. Yeah, you're, it's all about arbitrage. You know, you're arbitraging kind of the models. And if you're going two years out and uh, you have a fundamental view, uh, you know, I did that with IntraWest Resorts. That was the, the company that, uh, that Fortress uh, had in their private equity fund. It was partially public. And they did a tender offer at seven fifty dollars a share. It ended up getting uh, bought out at, I think it was twenty three seventy five dollars a share about a year later. And, you know, I, they, when they bought 10% of the company back at seven fifty, dollars I bought stock. I bought options. Um, you know, I loaded up because the... Uh, there was it was a, the pricing was attractive on the options, um, but you knew uh, that that it wasn't going to uh, be sold at thirteen or fifteen dollars. It was going to be sold at eighteen or twenty or twenty four dollars, and uh, that's ultimately what happened. And uh, so uh, the the Black Shoals models don't take into account the idea that uh, Fortress is the fund that they owned it in was in year eleven, and they needed to <laughs> to sell uh, this this company at a premium because it was the last. Uh, position they held in a fund that was a 2006 vintage uh you know so they needed to, to do everything to juice the final returns of this this holding and uh, that's not going to kind of go into these these models so that's fascinating steve if folks want to get in contact with you what's the way to do that yes you go to the website arquitos.com a-r-q-u-i-t-o-s uh, i'm on twitter uh as well steven uh underscore keel and um you know, I, I, you can you can find me. Uh, I, I think I go to the website and send an email and things like that. I actually outsource my operations, our Kitos operations, to Willow Oak Asset Management. So um, you can always uh, get in touch with some of our operational staff there. Jessica Greer is the, the primary contact for our Kitos. Uh, she works at, uh, at Willow Oak. And then, you know, come and see me at uh, Berkshire Hathaway or the Daily Journal or some of those meetings. Yeah, I'll be there this year. I'll make sure to say hello. Absolutely. Stephen Keel, Arquitos and Enterprise Diversified, thank you very much. Great being here with you, Toby.